This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 25, Writing Capers. We've only got 15 minutes, guys. Because you're in a hurry? I hope we're smart enough. (laughs) We got the right team. We can do this. I love it when a plan comes together. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, capers. Um, We, by this we mean the classic heist plot archetype. And we're going to talk about how to do it. And we all love it. And as we've determined, we all basically have done it before. Actually, to correct you, I am in the process of writing. Process of doing it. Which is why I was like, let's talk about that because I need help with it. Dan is our resident expert on capers. I want you to start explaining the caper format and the concept. Okay. The classic caper that uh, modern audiences tend to be most familiar with is Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Okay? And that's a great model of the archetype. You have the job you need to do, the mastermind slash leader gets, you know, a team of experts. You're very good at X, you're very good at Y, gathers them all together. They have like a chalkboard talk where they walk them through, this is what we're up against, this is what we're going to have to get past, and then they do it. And uh, depending on how much con artistry there is in the story, there could be a big major twist, or it could just go straight through without any hitches. Um, I've noticed, and I was telling Mary about this, two major archetypes for telling high stories. Um, this is my own research into it when I was, I was working on my own. One seems to be in the storytelling narrative, they outline the plan that happens with both. In one, they don't actually tell you the whole plan. Mm-hmm. They give you chunks and pieces of it, so you feel like you're getting the whole plan, but at the end, the real plan out to is be revealed to else. you. Yes. And this is actually what they do in Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, even some of the characters aren't always in on the full plan, and this is actually what I did in Mistborn, mm-hmm. um, that archetype. The other archetype is we outline the whole thing, we give you all the pieces, and then something horrible goes wrong, and what they usually end up doing is taking all those pieces they prepared to use in a special way, and rearrange them to face different problems mm-hmm. in, the, um, in, in the heist. The Italian job is a great example of this. Something major goes wrong, all they take, but all the things they'd already researched to do, they use in new and different ways to pull off their heist at, by the seat of their pants. Mm-hmm. This makes me wonder if there's some sort of sliding scale along the lines of the more the audience knows about the actual plan, the more things are going to go wrong. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, well, one of the things about the Ocean's Eleven, because I've been watching all of them right now, is that it looks like everything goes wrong. Like part of the plan involves Mm -hmm. looking like things are going wrong. So that pieces that you have already been introduced to, it looks like they are using them in a different way, but it's the way they had planned. And in Ocean's Eleven, I thought that was done brilliantly. In, uh, I think it was Ocean's 12 was the one with Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. When they get to the explanation of why, well, the... The one, the one where, where she was actually part oh, of the heist, yes. Yes. part of the scam. Um, when they got to the part where, oh, this is what actually happened, it felt like a complete cheat because it was something that the audience had, there was just no no clue at any point that any of these people had been in this place at any right. time. Mm-hmm. But it, um, I mean, it is, it can be a ve- very effective storytelling style. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm and, just saying that if you, yeah. do it, if you do it right, yeah. the audience feels like, oh, that's what that gap was yeah. that I was if, writing If you about. go back and rewatch Ocean's Eleven, mm-hmm. um, you can see them laying all the pieces yes. down. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And with no, knowing what their plan actually is, you can see that they give you all the hints you need yeah. yep. on a rewatch. And one of the things that is challenging about what we're talking about right now is that we're discussing films, and films can easily withhold that information from yes. the viewer. Mm -hmm. It is much harder to do that when you are writing, especially if you're writing a tight third person, which is the challenge that I'm right. running into. I should say that what I'm working on right now is book four in the Shades of Milk and Honey books, which we've described cleverly as Jane Austen writes Ocean's Eleven. Yes. And... <laughs> I'm kind of cursing myself for that because the Because plot you set the bar pretty high. <laughs> well, the plot structure for Ocean's Eleven is that the viewers don't know what's going right. on, and my books are structured in tight third person. So you may prefer Jane Austen meets the Italian job. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's one I haven't done as much, but I still think it's, it can be really effective um, because I like that concept of here we've introduced you all the pieces that we're going to need. We just need to find new ways to use them. It's it's very sort of fun storytelling archetype. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I, I notice about most um, heist and caper things is that there is a high degree of witty banter and dialogue. Yes. Uh, that the level of interpersonal relations needs to be as um, dynamic as the action. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'll definitely agree with that. It's a big piece of it because a lot of what you're doing is setup. Mm -hmm. And it, when action happens, it's because something went wrong. And little yeah. things will go wrong along the way, but these are people who are experts at not getting in trouble in this sort of way. Right. Mm -hmm. We should probably bring out that a heist doesn't need to be stealing something. Well, you right. see, and that's, that brings me to yeah. my own work mm -hmm. in Schlock Mercenary. It's almost always about, you know, we are going to position ourselves so that when we open fire, the maximum amount of damage has been done. Right. Uh, it's, you know, it's not like the Italian job or like, or like Ocean's Eleven, and uh, and be warned, fair listener, uh, I didn't do any studying of heist stuff. Um, you know, I didn't look at these archetypes as I was building it. I built it around, um, I want to put together, you know, a fun plan that sounds exciting. I want to put together a fun team so that, you know, there will be lots of action. And then, well, obviously things have to go wrong because it's funnier that way. Mm. Right. Um, and so I, I, you know, I kind of blundered into the Italian job style right. archetype, only instead of minis, they've got flying tanks. Mm -hmm. Well, and another big thing that does the Italian job type would be something like Mission Impossible. Yeah. Which is... That's a good point. We are yeah, going yeah. to pull, do something. It doesn't have to be stealing something. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and a great example yeah. for exa uh, is uh, Michael Crichton. Yeah. Almost every book he's yes, written exactly. is a caper formula even though he's not actually stealing something. Right. So you've got, uh, like, the sphere. It's yes. a team of specialists who are assembled to do a job, and they do it, and you've got all of those pieces in the right place. Yes, exactly. Um, I think we will go ahead and stop for our book of the week this week, which is actually going to be a Michael Crichton book. Thank you, Dan, for giving us this wonderful segue, because he writes quite a few um, caper-type Arc plot archetypes, and um, I'm going to choose the one that's actually a caper, which is The Great Train Robbery, uh, one of his very early novels. Um, it's one of my favorites of his, and it is, as it sounds, a Great Train Robbery. It's one of his. It's, there's no fantastical elements. It is just a caper, and it's a really well done one. Cool. Okay, well, uh, jump into your Cooper Mini and <laughs> head over to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse I love this new thing you've come up with. <laughs> I hope and it's amusing for the readers. I, well, I, I hope it's amusing because 
I'm working so hard at it. <laughs> Writing excuses, or excuse me, audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You can start a 14-day free trial membership over at Audible and download a copy of Michael Crichton's Great Train Robbery. Now, one thing you told me, Dan, when we were planning this podcast, is you mentioned that a lot of the weaker capers are ones to, that do not make the roles of the characters really effective. In mm. fact, you pointed out this is one of the weaknesses of Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Um, Ocean's Eleven has, because that name is so cool, yeah. too many characters. They don't actually need 11 people to pull off that job. And so while some of them are obvious, you know, we need the guy who can set off the EMP, and we need the guy who's in the right place to do this particular con, and so on and so on. There's a lot of other guys that are just kind of there to, to pad out the team. Mm -hmm. um, a, an example that, that does this really well is the TV show Leverage. Um, Leverage's uh, plots are occasionally uh, ridiculous, mm -hmm. but their characters are all very clearly defined. There's the hacker, the guy who beats people up, there's the con artist, there's the cat burglar, and then there's the mastermind who puts them all together. You know within the first five minutes of the first episode exactly what their jobs are and exactly how they will respond to any given situation. As a side note, you can occasionally see me as an extra on Leverage. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's in Portland. Awesome. Um, the A-Team is another example mm -hmm. of clearly defined roles. Mm -hmm. and, ba -da -ba, yeah, and, ba -da you know, and it was a TV show that was a series of heist capers. Yep. Um, but... This actually goes back to the uh, the dialogue. I think one of the reasons that the, the snappy banter, as we're talking about it, is there is because of the amount of setup that you have mm -hmm. to do, that that is what is con uh, maintaining the reader's interest during the entire setup section. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's going to be, really, a lot of these are going to be really character-driven mm -hmm. up until the snappy plot at the end. Right. And I think that, uh, just generally speaking, if you want to establish a plot point, uh, having two characters um, talk about it in agreement until they reach, you know, whatever decision is not nearly as interesting as the two characters arguing about it mm -hmm. and arriving at a decision and one of them's unhappy. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we, we now have a decision, we've reached this point in the book, and we have tension remaining because one of the characters does not have what they want. Yeah. And that allows you to keep, to keep the story moving. Uh, on another level. You know, something that's also occurred to me that Ocean's Eleven does, and I think some other films as well, uh, like A-Team is not, not a film, but um, mm -hmm. is that they use jargon to make it, to yes. mask the fact that they are not giving you the full plan. Right, right. Well, they do that. And the level of jargon involved, because, for instance, a lot of the, the capers, each of the roles will have its own jargon name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and this football heightens. movie, what's that? The football movie with George Clooney. I don't know what a pig and a poke is, but everybody who was playing on those football teams knew what that trick was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and all we needed to know that everybody was that everybody was familiar with that trick. Yeah, and that that occurs to me as a way to to make it make the reader feel like they are in on what's going on. Right. But it's a it's a place to not use exposition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Though I will m note, um, I did I did the Ocean's Eleven style plot in um, in Mistborn. I I did the you don't know the whole story and here's what happens. Um, and I had to cheat a little bit. Mm. And it's one of the times where I acknowledged myself I was cheating because uh, there's a main character Kelsier. One of the main characters knows the whole plan and the rest of them don't. Um, he worries that what he's planning is just too 
um, too much for them, that they're not, they would never go along with it. And so he has a plan behind the plan, sort of, if we need it, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I couldn't let the reader in on it because that was the whole story. The, the last 10% of that book is, here is Kelsier's plan that you've seen him putting together piece by piece that you didn't know yeah. what the pieces of it were. The, uh, the plan behind the plan that you see crop up in a lot of these uh, Ocean's Eleven style capers is uh, sometimes referred to as the Xanatos Gambit. That's, that's okay. the TV tropes name okay. for it, huh. uh, based on a character from the Gargoyles cartoon show. Okay. And the, the basic description of Xanatos Gambit is something goes wrong, but I need it to go wrong on purpose in order for my real plan to work. And the great right. example of this is the movie Die Hard, which mm -hmm. from the villain's point of view is a caper movie. Exactly. Alan Rickman's coming brilliant. in. His whole plan is to get the FBI to shut down the power grid. And just at the moment when you think he's lost, he's like, oh, that was the plan all along. They opened the safe for me. Right. Yeah. But to do this, I had to actually have a viewpoint character in a tight third person who every time this uh, moment would approach where he'd start thinking about this, had to back off and say, well, I, I can't think about that right now. It's too worrisome. I hope I don't need this. Yeah. And it's cheating. It really is cheating a little bit. If you go back and read Miss Morning and you'll see the moments where I'm doing this. Um, and it's the only excuse I could come up with to allow the foreshadowing to be there and still use him as yeah. a character. And I don't know how bad of a cheat that is. Well, I'm, I'm, if the it, reader it, feels if the reader feels cheated, yeah, then it's a horrible, horrible cheat. Mm -hmm. If the reader feels like you know they, if if the reader enjoys the book, hey, you got away with it. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's. I would say that I thought you handled it gracefully. I did. I was aware that you, you were, were aware doing, for the, of the cheat. Yeah, but you know, I'm I'm also reading in, <laughs> at times for right. that kind of thing. I was aware mm -hmm. of the cheat, but I thought it was handled gracefully. It is one of those things that can backfire yeah. horribly wrong. One thing before we run out of time that I'd like to talk about is actually how to plot one of these things. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm finding, I'm, normally I, I plot fairly linearly, except I can never say that word. <laughs> and um, what I'm finding with um, Valor and Vanity is that I'm having to plot back and forth because I actually have to figure out what the plan is and then go backwards to figure out who the characters are that I need to pull off the plan. Right. And then how do I introduce them in such a way so that they seem like they're, so that they serve another function in the story. Mm -hmm. And right. that's, I, I don't know if. Yeah, that's tough because I actually approached it the other way. I said, okay, what are the classic pieces of a, um, of a thieving crew? Mm. And how can I make a design a plot that each of them will be vital to what needs to be achieved? Hmm. And I actually designed my heist to make use of their skills. And did you do that the same way in Alloy of Law? Um, in Alloy of Law, I mostly free wrote, so no. Okay. Um, but Alloy of Law isn't a true heist um, um, story because Alloy of Law is actually the reverse heist. It's a detective novel. Um, it's a, someone else is pulling off a heist and we're finding the pieces of it. Right. Um, so it's the other side. And mm -hmm. so, yes, I needed to figure out what they were doing on the other side, but I could use fewer people in the heist and make it centered around one charismatic villain and then focus on him. I was actually thinking about the, uh, the dramatic ending. Ah, the dramatic ending. The reveal, the reveal was very heisty yes. yeah. in that we did not know the whole plan. Right. Um, right, the villain's plot. Yeah. Yeah, the villain's plot. And I did do that, but it was basically just one guy's, you know. Okay. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's a something, whatever gambit. Xanatos, Xanatos yeah, Gambit, there's a nice Xanatos. Um, by the by the villain in that one to be mm -hmm. a, a little reversal mm -hmm. um, from the first Mistborn book. We we don't have a ton of time, but I want to very quickly say if you want to see 
the very basic structure of a heist movie without any complications. Mm. There were there was a, a whole string of fantastic movies made in France in the 60s that were heists just straight through. Um, the two I remember the names of are Bob Le Flambeur and Rififi. And then there was another one that's really good, and we'll put it in the liner notes. But go watch those. Um, they almost break the, the formulas we're talking about because in, in some of them... You know, the plan doesn't actually go wrong, hmm. but you get to see mm-hmm. uh, all of the pieces. Yeah. We get the whole plan, and then the plan goes right. Yes, well, but, you know, they use these things the early like genre, so. setting up, mm-hmm. you know, over-exposition so that then the actual carrying out of the plan is incredibly tense as you wonder, will this actually work, and things like that. It's, they're really fantastic. Okay. Um, you know, in the movie Inception was also a heist movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, a great use of it because their roles were completely fantastical roles mm-hmm. for a heist. They mm-hmm. came up with their, with their own, um, you know, they don't need the standard heist roles. It was yeah. great because of that. Right. Um, needing the architect. Yeah, needing the architect and needing the person who's, yeah, yeah anyway. Um, and the sting. But we, um, we're out of time. Um, so, Dan, give us a, give us a heist um, sort of writing prompt. writing prompt. Okay. Your characters need to... Uh, Perform a heist in reverse and put jewels into a safe without anyone seeing them. Nice. This has been Ryan Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go right. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cut scene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 